Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Church, but he may not be for long. He knows the things to say. So, with 
Without any further introduction, we're very happy to have Reverend James Sheets in our pulpit this evening and welcome him and also the pulpit committee from New Lexington Baptist Church that our guests are guests. Reverend Sheets. Father, we beseech thy blessing upon us this evening. 
as we meditate upon your word, that our hearts and our minds would be open and receptive to the outpouring of your spirit, as each of us may have need. May thy spirit guide and direct all that is said and all that is done, and all that is felt within the mind and heart of each of us tonight, for we pray in Jesus' name. I have noticed over the years that there are a lot of surveys that are taken by various groups to find out the opinion of the population on any given subject. And usually there are opportunities for three responses. One is you are in favor, you are opposed, or you have no opinion. And I've been impressed by the fact that most people respond positively or negatively, and it is a small majority that, ex that give their expression as having no opinion. Almost everyone has an opinion on almost every subject. Have you ever noticed that? We know something about everything there is to know, we think, and are not afraid usually to, to voice our opinion on the subject. The problem is that most of our opinions are expressed without very much knowledge on the subject. We have not engaged in any fact-finding uh, efforts. We have not researched the subject, but nevertheless, we have come up with what we think is the right answer to any given subject. If I were to ask you this evening what your opinion is on the use of nuclear energy, you would perhaps most of you at least would have an opinion. You either, either favor the use of nuclear energy as a source or you oppose it. And there would be very few people perhaps that would say they have no opinion. But I suspect that most of us would base our decision not upon very much research at all. But we somewhere along the line have developed an opinion and that's probably just all it is. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to matters of the Spirit. When it comes to our opinion as to what God's Word actually says on any given subject, we again are faced with the same thing. And you can go down the streets and ask the people on the street what their opinion is of any particular Bible subject, and you will come up with with a similar expression, those who believe one thing and those who believe another, but a very small minority of people who would express no opinion. Their minds have already been made up. Now, the problem is, the big question that we need to answer in our individual lives and in the lives of our churches is what is our relationship to God? And to this question, there are going to be positive responses and negative responses and a few no opinions, but most of us will have an opinion as to what our relationship to God is. And it might be somewhat tragic, and I think it is tragic, your opinion may be different, that a lot of people will base their opinion upon the fact that they believe that they are good, that their sins are not too great, that they have good intentions, they have a good mind, a good heart, a good outlook on life, and every expectation of going to heaven when they die. However, if one did a good research 
project on this subject, could we come up with this kind of conclusion? Now, I give this as background to state this, that Paul is found in this situation in his life. And he goes through what I'm going to call four stages in his life that I believe reflect the stages that you and I go through in our lives. Stages in his thinking, stages in his uh, belief and concept as to what his relationship really is to God. And I think we need to look at those and use them as a basis for saying just what our opinion is about our own relationship to God at any given time in our life. <laughs> but as a general rule, the broad population would probably respond in such manner as we have already outlined is the general response of people, and it's not based upon too much uh, research of God's Word to make this decision or to come forth with this opinion. Back in the seventh chapter in the early portions of it, about the ninth verse, we find Paul expressing his first stage in his life, and that stage is he is quite satisfied with himself as he is. Quite satisfied. He had enough self-security to cover everyone. Let me read to you from the Living Bible just this one verse. I believe the Living Bible is a good reference to refer to to help us understand the King James. I like to read the King James and almost continually use it as the scripture from the pulpit, but I like to refer to other versions. That's just a little bit of uh, documentary for the benefit of pulpit men, you see. Uh, but from the Living Bible, the, uh, the ninth verse, we find these words. This is why I felt so long, or this is why I felt so long as I did, not understanding what the law uh, determined or demanded. Let me read it to you again. And he has background behind this as to the statement, but I think we can gather it quickly. This is why I felt so long as I did. Not that he feel so long as he did. He felt that he was in good shape. He was a young man that was beyond reproach. He was a model of morality. He was religious to the nth degree. He was a churchman and a leader in the church. He felt very good about what he had decided was God's word and God's place in his life. He had an impeccable background. If anybody was a marvelous man in his belief as to how he ought to serve God, it surely was Paul. He explained to the Philippians over in the third chapter of Philippians, the fourth through the sixth verses, he said if there's anybody that ought to be satisfied with his life, it ought to be me. That's my interpretation. Those are, are, are the, the words that would give the general gist of it. He said he was, he was uh, circumcised the eighth day, and he, he was a Pharisee, and he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he was very zealous, and he, he kept even the letter of the law uh, right down to the nth degree. He was, he was completely satisfied with, with that which he was doing was what God required. Now, the problem is a majority of people are in this state and must go through this state, but if they stay in this state, there are problems. 
I suspect that all of us have felt very satisfied with our lives at times as far as our spiritual nature is concerned. As a matter of fact, I believe this is the basic reason that most people who don't go to church do not go. What is the need? They're satisfied with things as they are. They know all there is to know that is worth knowing. Their opinions have already been expressed. They have made up their mind as to what they believe and why they believe it without doing much research from God's Word to determine whether that's accurate or not. Isn't this a pretty good general concept as to why people see no need of going to church? If you have this belief that your life is all right like it is, why disturb it by having somebody from the Pope and the Sunday School class tell you that's not just quite the way it is? I sat in a, at a lunchroom a few weeks back with a group of people and uh, eating lunch, and uh, the conversation always gets around at some time or other to some religious matter. One of the ladies in the group made a comment that was not exactly exemplary. And one of the fellows said to her, uh, if you don't change your ways, you're going to hell. And she said, if I'm going to hell, and I want you to, to pay attention to the word if, if I am, which in a sense was saying, I don't believe that I am, but on the outside chance, you see, if I am, I'm going to have plenty of company. And I, I said to her, if you know that hell is a place of isolation, you're going to be associated with anybody there. That's what subject you want to get into. Her response was, oh, no, that's not right. And she went on to other comments. There was no need in her mind to research any subject. She had already made up her mind. <coughs> and she knew exactly what she believed about hell, and when she went to hell, she was going to take, if she did, you see, she was going to take comfort in the fact that there were going to be lots of other people there to suffer around along with her. I'm not quite sure what the rationale is to that kind of thing, but that was her point. So Paul went through the stage of being completely satisfied with what he believed and why he believed it and what his relationship to God was. He was satisfied. Then one day, something happened. There was a man of the church named Stephen that the church believed was, was preaching contrary to the will of God because he was teaching belief in Jesus Christ and they stoned him to death. And this man, Paul, who was called Saul at that time, held their coats. Now, I believe that this was an episode of his life that caused him to begin to change a little bit. And I call the next episode that Paul went through as Paul the Terrified. He was no longer quite so well satisfied with what he had believed. For he saw in Stephen something that he had not thought of before. He had not experienced, and that he was a little bit troubled by the witness of a man who believed so determinedly in Jesus Christ as a Savior of the world that he would die for him. And he became terrified in his soul. He wasn't quite so sure that what he had thought the Scripture was teaching was accurate. He says in the 11th verse of the 7th chapter that sin revived and I died. All of a sudden, he began to see himself in a different light. He says a little bit further on, uh, his justification or his excuse 
or the reason that he was so determined to be satisfied was that sin deceived me. Sin deceived me. Do you not realize, I'm sure you do, that Satan is the great deceiver? He causes us to think that everything is all right. That's all he has to do. He doesn't have to knock us down and drag us around in chains. All he's got to do is convince us that everything's all right. There's no problems and we'll just go on our life being our fine, jolly self. And uh, we don't have to worry about the church or about any of the, the teachings that the church has or about any relationship to Christ because he's already got his mind made up. And it says you're okay like you are, you see. Some preachers talk about the ugliness of sin. And I honestly must tell you, I have never seen an ugly sin. Every sin I have seen has been absolutely beautiful. The results weren't beautiful. The consequences weren't beautiful, but I wasn't looking at that. We don't look at the consequences and the results until an afterthought. Until after the fact. Sin is beautiful. Have you ever seen one that was unappealing to you? Look at the billboards. You know, it's men of distinct distinction, and and uh, and it's something that appeals to the eye and appeals to the senses, and and is going to make us something beautiful and desirable in the lives of other people. We're going to use the right God, and we're going to use all the other products that make us acceptable, and this is appealing. We're going to drink and eat and use and drive the products that are appealing to our senses and our desires. And this is beautiful, but the consequences may not be. That's why Eve, when she looked upon the tree, uh, she saw it as something beautiful and something to be desired and something to make her as wise as God. And she yielded to this temptation. That's exactly what Satan does. He deceived her as he tried to deceive Christ when he was on his 40 days of fasting, to get him to yield to those basic de desires and cravings of his body and his mind to partake of something that he should not for his uh, just simple self-gratification. Well, Paul was in this kind of thing. Sin had deceived him to the place that he was so satisfied until he had the experience with Stephen and he mulled this over, and one day on the road to Damascus, he came face to face with Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you this, if you are not a Christian, you will never become one. Your opinions will not be changed until you are confronted with the one person that is going to change your life. And if you are so satisfied to be so blind as to not research the subject, you will never reach the second stage. You will always remain in the stage of being self-satisfied. But if your mind is disturbed a bit and you wonder about the truths of the scripture, then you are beginning to be turned around and you need to have that personal relationship, that personal meeting with Jesus Christ. You need your own road to Damascus. This is the second stage that Paul went through. Thirdly, I want to call Paul the struggler. I want to call him the struggler. We find this here in the 17th and the 7th chapter, beginning about verse 15 and following there for a few verses. 
We have sometimes the misconcept that once a person becomes a Christian, everything's all right. The old habits are gone, the old appetites are gone, the desires are gone. We have simply conquered everything. You ever had any problems with that? Did you find it strange the first time you had some of the desires that you once had before you were a Christian? They just sort of seemed to, to revive in your heart and in your mind and in your body, and you just had to participate. You just don't suddenly become a, a perfect individual and cast off all of these old things because you become a Christian. Your struggle has just begun. Paul found this out, and he said something. He said two things in the following verses there, from 15 down about through 24. He said, I have found out the things that I ought not to do. I do them. And I also found out the things that I ought to do, I don't do. Does that sound like you and me? You know, it's almost shocking when Paul says it. I had to take a new look at this when I was studying it to see if I was really reading it right. Paul, you mean to tell me that you feel and experience the same things as I? You admit your weakness? You confess that you still sin? Yes, you continue to sin. There was still good and evil in his body and in his mind that kept him torn between the two. And whenever he thought that he had everything all right, he suddenly discovered that he had done something he should not have. I used to have an employee who, who had a statement that I, I sort of captured and uh, have, have kept in my mind. Whenever somebody did something that was wrong in, in the work, he would say, I can't believe you did that. It was pretty exciting. If he did something wrong, he would also say, I can't believe I did that. And do you know how many times do you and I sin, and then after it's over, we sort of stand back and take a look, and we say to ourselves, I really can't believe I did that. Or I can't believe I said that. Now, let me tell you, that one is a, is a dilly. How many times have you opened your mouth when you should have kept it shut? I've done that, and you've done that. Suddenly we have done or said something. There's a private joke in our family about the time or two that I've said something that wasn't quite as nice as it ought to have been. And my children don't let me forget it. When they slip a little bit, you remind their dad that he, he slipped once too. When they, they sure do remember that and never have forgotten. Paul is one who has entered into a stage of struggling when he sins when he doesn't want to. These are the sins of commission, as we have come to call them. He goes on to say that he also sins by not doing the things that he feels that he ought to do. These we have called the sins of commission. <laughs> now, these are the ones that we try to sweep under the rug and ignore them and don't think that they're too bad. But let me tell you on the day of judgment, the thing that worries me is not the sins of commission as much as the my record is going to show all of that list of sins of omission. 
that I have forgotten about. We know that we ought to go to church and we know that we ought to pray and tithe and visit the sick and, and be good parents and all the other things. But somehow or other we don't seem to accomplish them. We just overlook them. We get too busy, too involved. Well, this was Paul's situation. The notion that we have reached our goal as a Christian when we have accepted Jesus Christ is wrong. That's just the beginning. No one wins a game of football by signing up for the team. He's got to get out there and practice and sweat and get dirty and beat his head against the head of the other person over there and become bloody and break bones. That's what they do on the pro football at least. And even in high school football, we carry some of, of our problems from that time because we have got to prepare ourselves to meet our opposition. The same thing is true as a Christian if we don't gear up and study and prepare for our confrontation with life, we will discover there are times that we're going to fall short of not having the capabilities to withstand the enemy when he comes because we thought all there was to it was simply just to get saved and everything was rosy. We haven't practiced our religion. Paul said in Philippians in 2.12, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Allow me to to reinterpret that for my own benefit, and maybe it will help you, I believe it would be proper to say, work at your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, our salvation is something that we need to work at. We must not be satisfied with where we are, but we must have a goal in the future, this is what I preached about this morning, as having a goal to strive for, that we might put our Christianity, might put our faith into action, and then indeed accomplish something. And then fourth, let me say that Paul goes through a stage that I would like to call Paul the Three. And that's the verses that we read in our, in our scripture. Paul the Three. If, if you can, and when you have time, look at these verses and read the attitude that he seems to be expressing all the way up to the 25th verse. And then it seems as though all of a sudden he expresses relief because he sees things more clearly, he is a free man because of Jesus Christ. He is not bound by the laws that the Jewish people had established. You just can't go very far on Sunday, and you can't pluck uh, wheat on Sunday and rub it in your hands and, and eat it as a meal on Sunday. You can't draw water. You can't heal the sick. You can feed your animals all right, but you can't heal the sick. And all of this list of things that, that they couldn't do. The Pharisees were, were the keepers of the law. And there was a group of them that were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. You know why? The law said that a Pharisee couldn't look at a woman in public. And if he was walking down the street and a woman approached him, even if it was mother, his wife, or his daughter, he was not allowed to look at her. And he would close his eyes, and of course in the process run into buildings or close to people. And he was always bruised and bleeding. They got this title, rooms and bleeding Pharisees, because they were so insistent upon obeying the law, they became ridiculous at it. And Paul suddenly realizes that his uh, determination to fulfill even the little jots and tittles of the law that bound him down, he was suddenly free in Jesus Christ. He had been made free. He became, Christ became his Savior. 
after his Lord, and he found out that there was no condemnation, no condemnation, he says in verse 1 of the 8th chapter, to those that are in Christ Jesus. We will not be condemned, friends. We have already been redeemed, and there is no condemnation for you and me if we are in Jesus Christ. That man, situation has already been settled. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description. Thank you for listening, and remember to try Trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.